This is Ralph Carhart, the author of The Hall Ball, and you are listening to Baseball and Barbecue. to episode 94 of Baseball and BBQ. I'm Jeff Cohen with my very debonair co-host, Leonard Aberman. Len, how are you? I'm feeling... <laughs> hey, Jeff, I am feeling debonair, yes. <laughs> that was a great way to start the show. That is some Greek music. Jeff, why? Why are we starting the show? Other than the fact that we have downloads from Greece... Why are we starting the show with Greek music? Because we have a chef with with us this evening. Well, whenever you're listening to this recording, George, Len, help me out with the last name. Georgiatis. George Georgiatis. Yes, and he will be coming up it's on us. It's Greek to you. That's Greek. To, exactly. It's definitely Greek to me. <laughs> and we will be hearing from George later in the program. But first, Len, how you doing? Doing well. It has been. Two weeks yes. since you and I recorded an episode, and it feels like a lot longer. A lot's going on. Episode 94, right? Yes, episode 94, but let's skip the number and talk about another number. The number, I think it's the number six. Number six? What's, what's the number six? Well, we are in week, I think we're in week six of the baseball season. We already have our sixth no-hitter. Six no-hitters, that's right. That's quite a lot for, what, six weeks into the season. Yeah, at this rate, what what are they going to have, 50? (laughs) I I think the record is either seven or eight in a season. And we're already at six, and it's halfway through May. Right. So when when something as special as a no-hitter happens too often, it doesn't become special anymore. Can I just offer um, for a moment the the fact that you and I are Met fans? Now, we have our no-hitter, yes. right? Johan Santana uh-huh. pitched our no-hitter yes. as, as Met fans. June 1st, 2012. God, you, are, you know your <laughs> trivia. So when you look at these no-hitters, of course, like if you're reading the paper online and you can just, it'll say no-hitters and then it'll give the records for all the teams. And you're looking at all these teams, and they have ten no hitters. They eight no hitters. They, you know, I think the Yankees have eleven no hitters or something. And I know the Mets are only around fifty something years, but one 
no well, Padres only have one no hitter too, and that happened this year. Jeff, is there a team now without a no hitter? I think, I they think were the every team for... has a no hitter. The interesting right. part about the, these no hitters this year: three teams were no hit twice: Texas, Cleveland, and Seattle. All American League teams. That's the DH, which is supposed to increase offense. Right. So you know, what, now what's what interesting? What's, what's, what? Why not? Yeah, why not? What's interesting? Well, Cleveland it was just not considered to be a great team this year has two against them. And I think if we do a little self-promotion coming up sometime, we're going to be having on somebody from Cleveland to talk about right yes. the, the team, Farley oh. Dillinger, right? That's right. He's from the podcast baseball PhD. He'll right. be joining and, us in uh, a few weeks. Yes. Yeah. I love that name too. I mean, Farley, I'm going to have to ask him about that. Farley <laughs> Dillinger, it's yes. either a porn name or a movie star name. <laughs> Len, um, I was going to say to you, I want to ask you something about a, a player who I think this year is, is phenomenal. And that's Shoei Otani. The guy can pitch, the guy can hit, mm-hmm. the guy can play the field. He's phenomenal. I know it's only a, a quarter of a season so far, 40 games or so. But this kid, we don't see anything like him. Yeah, he's phenomenal. As a matter of fact, I think he's actually going to manage as well. He could. He's going to be the manager. I think he's going to coach third. <laughs> and I think he might even ump the game. I mean, well, as of this, could do everything. As of this recording, he leads the league in home runs, and he has a 2.4 ERA. I mean, come on. <laughs> this guy's great. And, you know, they don't use a DH when he pitches. And he's batting like right. second, second or third. You know, I wonder if there are some other players who, you know, if the, if it's going to become more, you know, there there are players that can play both positions. I don't know how well, you know, that because usually the guy who becomes a great major leaguer was a pitcher in little league and you know throughout uh-huh. college and stuff. I you you think that this is going to start something, or you think he's just a, I think a rarity? Like I think it's Bruce. a rarity. I think it's a rarity, but it's a good thing that we get to see this rarity because it, it's a, he's a generational oh, player that comes that comes around just once every millennium. And you know yeah. who else was a, he's a, incredible. A, and you know who else was a generational player. I got a question for you: Who was the best pitcher never to win the Cy Young Award? Wow, I know that answer, Jeff. You do. That would be Cy Young. That's true. <laughs> he never he never won, won the award, award. <laughs> he no. went by, and and the reason why i brought him up is our guest tonight our first guest we're going to hear from is lou freeman and he wrote a fabulous book on the life of cy young cy young is somebody who who really probably most people don't know much about and everybody knows the award and as you'll hear during the lou friedman interview the award on was made one year after Cy Young passed away, so he never knew about the award. Right. And he, he won, what, 511 games? 511 games, and he was not in the, in the, in the inaugural Hall of Fame class, believe it or not. That's, that's kind of a... Yeah. Well, you talk kind of about that in the interview. Yes. You, you, also, he was in the first World Series. want to learn about Cy Young, yes, yes, he was. So if you want to learn about Cy Young, you pick up the book, but you also listen to this interview because learned a lot about Cy Young from this interview. And with that, here's our interview with Lou Friedman. Lou Friedman is the author of nearly 60 books on sports, including Knuckleball, The History of the Unhittable Pitch, A Summer to Remember, 
about the 1948 Cleveland Indians and Warren Spahn, a biography of a legendary left and is the winner of more than 250 journalism awards. A veteran sports writer, Freeman was formerly a staff writer for the Chicago Tribune and the Philadelphia Inquirer, as well as many other papers. He hails from Columbus, Indiana. His latest book is Cy Young, The Baseball Life and Career. Welcome to Baseball BBQ, Lou Friedman. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome, Lou. Cy Young. Wow. Everybody thinks they, because of the award, they know Cy Young, great pitcher. And then that's it. They might know that he won over 500 games, but this book was phenomenal. The history of this book was, that, that you had in this book was great. So if I could just fawn for a second and tell you how Oh, any time. I don't get enough of that. <laughs> and now, Jeff, go ahead. So, Lou, you've written so many books. What made you decide this was the time to write about Cy Young? Well, that's a very ironic question. First of all, I've actually written more than that. I'm way, way above that number now. But Cy Young as an idea for me actually predates almost every one of those other books. I, when I first hoped to write about ba a baseball book, Cy Young was on my mind. And this is 30 years ago. At the time, I didn't have an outlet for it. I started getting the opportunity to write other books. And then, so it kind of got put on the shelf. And there was a book, there was a Cy Young book about 20 years ago. And that was the most recent. So it finally came around to me, the opportunity with the company I was dealing with and, and whatnot to revisit the idea. So it was always in me that I would love to write about Cy Young. And I finally got the chance, really. I mean, I never thought it would be so many years after I first thought of it. I actually, uh, I'm a regular visitor to the Baseball Hall of Fame Research Library, as you might guess from the repertoire of books, and they know me well there. <laughs> and the very first time I ever went there, I was writing for the Anchorage Daily News in Alaska, where I was a sports editor. And the first thing I ever researched was enough to write a column about Cy Young. And this time when I went back, I was able to read quite a bit more about Cy Young. You know, before we, I don't want to forget about this because you just said something. The library there. Now, I, I've never been in that library. Of course, we've had so many authors who have used that library. How does that work? If, if Jeff and I wanted to go and spend a day perusing through the library, how would that work? Do you just call up and say, listen, I, I want to come in. Do you have to have credentials? How do you get in that library? Basically, one of two ways. I mean, I don't work there, so I don't set rules. But as far as I know, nothing's changed. If you wanted to do a major day of research, for example, and you had a topic, you would definitely call ahead for an appointment, and they would ask you to email the topics you want to investigate. And perhaps, and usually, actually, the names of the individuals, because they have an individual file on every single person who's ever played in the majors, and they would have them ready for you when you showed up, say, at nine o'clock in the morning, and for your day. Uh, there are people who just, visitors to the Hall of Fame, who on the spur of the moment will wander into the library and say, hey, we have a question, or I've been there when someone has come in and uh, it's a family visit, and they said, you know, a great uncle of mine used to play baseball, and I wonder if you have any records about him. And I'll just uh, sort of pop that question spontaneously to the researchers, 
and they'll look it up and give them some information. So if you're going to do a major effort, and a lot of times when I go, I might spend the whole week, like Monday through Friday, so, and do email my requests and the names and the topics that I would like to look into. If it's a, a short thing, a quickie thing like that, where it might be a personal connection or just a, you want to know about a guy you were a fan of when you were a kid, some people just walk in the door and pose the question. And a lot of times they can just help them standing there at the desk. If I'm experienced, they're not open on weekends. So if anybody wants to do that, go during the week. Monday through Friday. That's right. So, Luke, can you tell us about Cy Young's young life before he got into baseball? I know he grew up on a farm. And how did he get into baseball? You know, there wasn't, you know, when you think about how far back he goes, I mean, he was born just a few years after the Civil War. It wasn't like there was ESPN Game of the Week on to help pique his interest in the sport. So it was the the local town teams were the ones that were had their teams going. And he did, he did grow up on a farm. He was a farmer, really, mo- almost his whole life until he physically was unable to do, do it anymore. But lived on a farm in Ohio for most of his life and was an active cultivator of crops in the off-season for many, many years. He was he didn't have a family that had a background in baseball because nobody had a background in baseball <laughs> almost at that time. And he just got into it in the area. And he um, the great story about Cy Young is he, he grew very fond of uh, uh, of the game and wanted to prove himself was that, you know, he could really throw as we found out. And as we still are reminded at least once a year for, and that's how, and, and, you know, people don't even realize his that wasn't his real name. Right. And then, you know, and, and, and the name Cy is actually a nickname for a nickname. Right. Where when he started to, you know, throw, he was so fast. He was seen one time by a nickname Cyclone because he could throw as fast as, you know, a hundred mile an hour storm. And he became known as Cy from Cyclone. But his real name had nothing to do with that. And I, I suppose, I wonder what percentage of baseball fans were even aware of Cy Young. Have any idea that's not his real name? No, it's Benton True Young. And there was some dispute for a while about his middle name and confusion over it. And Denton True Young is what it was. And there were people who called him Tecumseh as a, real, as a middle name, but that was not accurate. And then everybody forgot about that except for a few of his closest relatives. Uh, after a short period of time, he was Cy Young to everybody. Right. Now, he, he started, I know, he, I remember from your book, he was throwing against a barn door or barn, a, a barn and to get his arm strength up. And when he actually did start pitching for, uh, for a living, it was actually before the mound was 60 feet, six inches. It was what, 45 or 50 feet? Is that uh, the 50s, they, It switched around, I think, 1892 or so. He had a couple of years in yeah. before it changed to the standard distance that we know was 60 feet, six inches. And there's, there's some tales of some of the great early pitchers and great Hall of Famers whose careers, you know, more often than not, we thought they pitched their arms off because they threw insane numbers of innings and they had this major drop off all of a sudden, you know, by the time they were say 32 or 33 years old. But in some cases it also coincided with the uh, change in the mound distance. So you have to wonder if those guys were impacted by the rule change that they either, but maybe both, maybe, you know, 
throwing 450 innings <laughs> was not good for their health. But it also, you know, when they changed the distance, they suddenly couldn't keep up and they lost a couple miles an hour on their fastballs and the, and the uh, hitters caught up to them. Well, you know, th- let's, let's think about it for a second. The, the mound right now is 60 feet, 6 inches. At one time, it was 45 feet. Now, when Cy Young pitched, when he started, it was 50. But that is a big change. When you think about how 15 feet, 10 feet, yeah, yeah that, is, that, that is quite a big difference for the hitters and, and, as well as the pitchers. I could definitely see that, how that affected them. You know, it, it's very interesting because from your book, I learned that Cy Young wasn't always the best pitcher that year, you know, as far as wins. He didn't have always the most wins in a year. But what he had was he had an arm that was incredible. And he pitched the most years. And every year he's winning over 30 games. But there were some guys that were winning more. They were winning 40, 45, 50. But those guys, they, they didn't last as long as Cy Young. So the, the funny thing is, you could actually say, was a compiler. <laughs> <laughs> yes, had a pretty high level. <laughs> right, absolutely. But <laughs> to look, get 500 look at, look at plus Big Ed wins. Walsh. I'm sorry? Look at Big Ed Walsh with the White Sox. He had that 40-game season, but he, right. he kind of burned himself out. Exactly. It's didn't amazing he have a 464-inning year once? Right. These yeah. guys threw, well, at that time, and, and tell us, Luke, these teams, they didn't have a staff of five. And they didn't have a guy that most – the pitchers finished what they started. What were, uh, It was common for a team to have, what, at most three starters on a team? Three starters? They might have five pitchers total. I mean, we got we got rosters now where, what, 25 – say there's 25 players, there might be 12 or 13 pitchers out of those 25 guys. Right. And those guys were only expected to throw an inning apiece in many cases. The complete game, of course, really is an endangered species. Oh yeah, that that's for, for sure. And and Cy Young pitched so many complete games; it, it's uh, it's unbelievable. And the amount of innings he pitched, what what struck me looking at his stats and reading a book, he really wasn't a, a strikeout pitcher though. I mean, he had very low totals in comparison to the innings that he pitched. He just knew how to get guys who hit him where they were instead of hitting where they mean. <laughs> that's right. He really killer. Yeah, but. But he struck out plenty. I mean, when you think back to the time period before the modern era, I mean, Walter Johnson had that lifetime strikeout record, around, I think it was 3,508 or something for a long time before people started passing him, you know, right. in, in abundance. And Cy Young, I believe, without looking at it, it was like about 2,800. So he was up there. Yes. Um, yeah. And he also led the league in strikeouts periodically, he did, but the strikeout leading, leading totals were not what they became. You know, with Nolan Ryan and even my old friend J.R. Richard would have 300 in, here and there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Bob Feller might have been the demarcation line. I'm just saying that off the cuff. I'm not sure, but perhaps he was the, the transition guy. Right. Let me take you back to the late 1890s when he's starting out with the Cleveland Spiders. He's winning uh, twenty between twenty seven and thirty five games, and he has a 
a pitcher on a team with him who's, who wasn't too bad either. His name was George Cuppy. Yes. It was like a, an A1 and A, A, A2. I mean, George Cuppy, he, he won 26, 25, 24 games when, when uh, Cy Young was, hitting, was, was pitching, you know, 30 wins. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. No. Again, <laughs> not, not with the durability or the, uh, you know, the longevity. Right. right. That's one of the other things those guys didn't have. You know, he kept, he kept coming in every year and doing the same thing. And his supporting cast was very different over a period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the longevity of those other pitchers, you know, they didn't have those kinds of 20. Just think about the, you know, 511 wins is for how many wins a year for how many years. That's what it really was, yeah. was impressed, the most impressive. Lost a lot of games. Yeah, well, Lou, every year or so, did he he pitch the season and then he went back to the farm? Was that every year he did that? For many years, yes. Especially, I mean, he had the love of his life. They had a happy marriage for a long time. And, you know, it was the girl next door, the farm next door, literally, I believe. You know, they had met as teenagers. And, uh, yeah, in the off-season, that's what they did. They went home. You know, the old neighborhood, which was a small neighborhood, I mean, he was pretty well known as the local, the local guy. They, you know, he, he was, you know, appreciated by his neighbors, but they didn't fawn over him. You know, they didn't have the kind of celebrityhood that he might have had traveling around in big cities and making appearances. But that's kind of celebrityhood didn't really take hold until the 20s, really. And, and it was more boxing. Of- Right, boxers had more celebrity. A few of them, because they were always mobile. You know? and, and, you know, baseball, it's its interesting because I've heard people say, well, they, they didn't make as big a deal out of when Cy Young was making these records. or But baseball was in its infancy. People didn't realize that these were even going to be records because, like I said, other pitchers were having seasons where they had – more wins possibly but they didn't realize that they wouldn't be able to pitch as many years so i I think that correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like as time went on that's when he really got the recognition that he deserved at, at being so young i think you're right about that and i think but by the time he was retiring there was that kind of awareness was starting to take hold. I mean, when looking at some of the research and the clips, there was a fairly big deal made when he won his 500th game. There was certainly by then, and you know, by then he was so far ahead of everybody else and had outlasted those other guys from the 1890s by 15 years or more. There was this awareness sinking in that you know, maybe we are seeing something special that will last. And then, indeed, he lived to 1955, when, at the age of 88. So you're right about that as time passed and as, more, as the game matured and there were more seasons and there were more people who did wonderful things but didn't come close. There was there became that recognition. And look at the origin of the Cy Young Award. It was the year after he died. 1956. So, but certainly by the time he passed away, there was baseball recognized. There's a pretty good chance this guy is going to be the guy forever. Yeah. Oh, he definitely, he definitely will be. Absolutely. I mean, it's imagine anything else now. No, never happened. 
never happened. And, and who knew it would never happen when he got his 500? Nobody knew it would be, nobody else would come close. I, you're right about that. But I think, like I said, my, my, my feeling from reading the contemporary clips that were limited in their own way, but there was sort of a, an, an acknowledgement and a recognition that, uh, that it was starting to kick in, that 500 is something unusual. Yeah. He, he seemed to have a personal catcher. Could you talk about his relationship with Lou Krieger? Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, one of his catchers, right. Yeah. Seemed to follow him from team to team, from Cleveland to St. Louis to Boston. I think he made his career out of being size pal. You know, I mean, I don't know how long he would have been in the majors without it. But, uh, you know, he stuck around and as long as he could. It was a good thing. But, I mean, certainly Cy Young said complimentary things about his uh, lose awareness of the game, his knowledge, his ability to call a game. It wasn't like Krieger was a big star hitter and stood out as much on his own, but they were a team. They were battery mates. You know, you don't hear that phrase too often these days, but that was a common description of a somebody who had, yeah, I think the most recent description of that, the might fill that is personal catcher. Right. But, but battery mates was what was used certainly uh, over the years. And he, he Lou knew where he fit in that galaxy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he, you know uh, Cy Young was a constellation. He might've been a lonely blinking star, but he was hitched to him. <laughs> Lou, when you were doing the research, what stood out? I mean, what surprised you most about uh, this man and his career? I don't know about surprise the right word, but I was certainly struck by the fact that he was the ultimate clean liver. You know, this is not a guy who went around celebrating his victories in bars, who bought drinks for the house, who smoked, who partied. I mean, he literally pitched and he went home and he uh you know after a certain point his wife was with him literally going home even in the off season you know when he lived in boston and then the off season they would go back to rural small town ohio where he didn't live it up either so he was i mean he was so consistent in that manner that even though he you know gained weight over the years and made some fun of himself at the end about being too fat and that's why I got to retire he did not hasten the end of his career by carousing or or drinking or smoking or other bad habits that you would sum up as bad habits or the kind of things that were attributed to the colorful nature of Babe Ruth who was out there you know and that was part of what made Babe Ruth's personality that he sure. was always out there with everybody I mean, but again, there was a different level of celebrityhood. I don't know. I lived in Cody, Wyoming for several years and was very taken by it. Actually, the same company did a book of mine where I did a, a biography of Buffalo Bill Cody. And they claim, and, you know, Buffalo, it was suggested that Buffalo Bill Cody and then Annie Oakley were Americans, America's first superstars. And that was certainly a different era of celebrityhood as well, ahead of those athletes. And that was just because, and it wasn't because they partied. Certainly, Annie Oakley never did. She was a real homebody too. But Buffalo, and but Buffalo Bill was always out there with the people, like a Babe Ruth in that sense. And he also would go into bars and drink and hang out with the fans. But Cy Young, no, never. You know, he was not that kind of guy. Uh, Lou, when you were doing the research, did you? I, I know you spent a lot of time in the uh, the Hall of Fame library. But degrees of separation, was there anyone that you spoke to that might have 
either known Cy Young or knew a family member or anyone like that? I'll tell you what, you know, he and his wife never had children. So the family tree was abruptly ended. He, there was a neighbor, young girl that considered him to be a grandfather, and that she had already passed away as well. She had played that kind of role in his life of being family for many, many years. It was, you know, you got to remember, the guy was born in like 1869 or something. So Right. That's but he, one but he did that, die, right, but he died in 1955. And that was so significant just, in the fact that if you go back to the, his playing days, re, sports writers did not go to the locker room after games. So the game stories were like listening to the radio, and, you know, with the play-by-play. And if it was not for the fact that he lived to be until 1955, there wouldn't be nearly as much Cy Young material about him reflecting on his career because he was often sought for interviews and, you know, talking about the game and making some appearances later in life that were recorded. I love the photos in the book. Yes. The, some of the, those uh, were a hoot. Yeah. For anyone that, that, that likes, you know, the old photos, I mean, there's a photo of uh, Cy Young alongside, uh, now all of a sudden I can't remember, who was it Trish Speaker? I think there's a photo of them together. Yeah. And there's a photo of Cy Young with Cy Young. <laughs> when when uh, that, that company, uh, the rubber company, sent somebody named Cy Young to meet with Cy Young. Yes. yes. Right. So it's I like just, the one, I like when as an older man, he was signing autographs for Little Leaguers. Yes. And, yes. you know, that, that was a whole, you know, and, and he was very much involved in his retirement in local youth baseball in Ohio, where he helped them start the Little League, the Pony League, all those kinds of things. He threw out their first pitch for kids. He encouraged the development of the game. That was after his wife passed away and he was stopped farming. He was at, I I always sensed that he was a little bit at loose ends when he lost his life partner like that. And he wasn't going to coach at that, you know, in his seventies, but, but the people around him and the people who were longtime friends and neighbors, the people in Ohio always looked at him as a local treasure. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was the thing that helps, you know, made the best parts of his life in the last stretch of it. And of course, even Bill Vec, when he owned the Cleveland Indians, he had a Cy Young day, invited everybody who lived in his town to come for a free ticket, <laughs> That's a free right. ticket to go to a game. <laughs> Sounds just like Bill Vec. Yes. <laughs> exactly what he would do. And, 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 you know, but those are the ways that people, you know, kept Cy Young active in the sport and the way he stayed in, active in the sport. And like I said, sports writers would go to the farm and talk to him in the offseason. In 1890, after the 1898 season, the last with the Cleveland Spiders, I guess because of money trouble, he was, know, was, it, was he sold to St. Louis Browns or, or did he just, was he just going in his own volition? It was kind of like he was assigned because they were the these brothers owned two teams, and they had a grudge against Cleveland because they wouldn't let him play Sunday baseball. Right. So they they made him go to the St. Louis team, which turned out to be good for him because the Cleveland Spiders 
of the next season were just about the worst team in Major League history for that one year. Although I had the passing thought the other day, if you guys were noticing that the Cleveland Indians are going to give up their nickname and they're going to need a new one, I wondered if they would toy with the idea of going back to the Spiders. Yeah. Except that would probably be a negative connotation given that the Spiders were the worst team in, <laughs> in baseball history. What was for the 1899 season? Right. They were pretty atrocious. Yes. And also people have, you know, now people, with spiders, people don't like spiders. <laughs> True. It's probably not the best uh, merchandising item, right? They have logos with spiders. No, I guess not. <laughs> uh, but, but he spends two years in St. Louis. One year with St. Louis, they were called the Perfectos and the, uh, the Cardinals. But if I remember right, he wasn't too happy with St. Louis with the weather and it was too hot. Can you talk about that? Yeah, in fact, he was dreading it in the beginning. I mean, well, he and his wife were kind of homebodies to start with. So the idea that he was in, you know, playing in, in Ohio to start with appealed to them. It was only a short train ride to go home at the end of the season. And they, they were not world travelers. You don't read about Cy Young taking vacations in Australia or Japan or any of that stuff. So, I mean, and so venturing halfway across the country to a place that was notorious for being hot and humid didn't appeal to him very much. When, you know, they, it turned out to be okay, you know, for baseball purposes. But it wasn't like they were wedded to the community the way they, they had an affinity for Cleveland. And the way eventually, you know, he... He grew to feel that way about Boston, where he was revered and popular and had many grand experiences as well. And they liked Boston. And, you know, Boston, New England weather in the summer, you know, once in a while it gets cold. <laughs> so yeah. it was better than the humidity in St. Louis. But, I mean, I don't think that was a turning point at that point in his life. But, you know, and Boston adopted Cy Young pretty heavily. I mean, this is a statue of him at Northeastern University in Boston these days, a late in life, you know, not a late in life, a long after death statue. I mean, I don't think it was put up until, you know, several years ago, many years after he died. But, you know, Boston still cares about Cy Young and his affiliation with the Red Sox. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think it's changed, but I believe the team record for wins is a tie between Cy Young and Roger Clemens. Tim Wakefield was sneaking up on it, <laughs> but then he retired that year. Well, he gets to Boston in 1901 and immediately goes 33 and 10, follows that up by going 32 and 11. And in 1903, they have the first World Series. He, his year, that year, he was uh, 32 and 11, 2.15 ERA, not, not too shabby. And he participates in the very first World Series game. When you think about that baseball, yes. his Cy Young pitched during the first World Series. Yes. And, and he lost that first game. That's the part that's not appropriate. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Although the team won and he did well the rest of the series. Right, he, he finished 2-1 and one for the series. He, won, he wins game uh, five and game seven yeah. uh, pretty handily. And, and Boston goes on to win the World Series. So uh, talk about his World Series experience. Well, I think, I mean, when in 1901, he, he wasn't sure what he was getting into by going with the Red Sox because there was a new league. The American League was brand new. As it turned out, and it did have staying power, like so many of the expansion leagues we've seen come and go in football, basketball, and wherever, you know, and I've lived through many of those, you know, from the ABA to the in basketball to the World Hockey Association. People forget how rare it was to have an expansion league succeed because the American League was an expansion league so long ago. 
Right. You know, but but Cy Young's name and some of those other guys, Larry Lajeway, those were guys that made it with their reputations. So, and he understood that. He understood that he was a drawing card by that time and that he was making a difference. And so the idea, you know, when the World Series came along, he, uh, you know, he wanted to shine. He did. He cared about showing well, you know, in this you know, this new series between the leagues. And although it didn't take very long, probably by 1903, the American League was established enough. It wasn't going away. It was still very young. And, uh, but he, that, that mattered to him. You know, he wanted to do well against the, uh, the established league and, you know, of course, carry his team to the title. Right. The book is called Cy Young, The Baseball Life and Career. We're speaking with the author, Lou Friedman. If you love baseball history, you're going to love this book because obviously Cy Young is, does not pitch in a vacuum and he plays with some incredible players. There are guys who hit uh, incredible hitters, incredible pitchers, and there's just uh, it, it's baseball history at its best. It's really it's how baseball started and it's just fascinating. What, you guys must love that stuff. That's oh, all we do. Yeah. Given what you guys do. You must yeah. love all of that. Oh, all the yes. history. We eat, Lou, we eat it up. That's, that's one of the <laughs> benefits of this podcast. To talk to people like you is, is really one of the biggest perks. I wanted to ask you this. The award is named the Cy Young Award in 1956, right? A year after he dies. Of course, it, nobody knows when someone's going to pass away, although he was 88. And I always think, you know, wouldn't it be nice if they had made this award prior to his passing away so he could possibly, you know, enjoy it and know that there's an award named after him. However, Cy Young, being who he was, how do you think he would feel knowing that this award is named after him? Because he seemed very modest, very humble. I agree that he is definitely a modest guy and self-effacing and, and humble. But he also, as time went on, understood a little bit as his statistics stood up that maybe I did do some special stuff, you know, and look at how long those records have lasted. So I think he, I guess you could say he almost came to appreciate himself a little bit. I think he would have been very proud that such an award was named after him. And I mean, I mean, retroactively, here we are, what, 65 years later since it started pretty much. I mean, it's, it's, hard to imagine who else would have it would have been named for right i mean it's not like christy matthewson was not a good pitcher but you know cy young pitched a million more games and innings and you know it feels like it and and we know now of course that nobody's ever going to catch him in many of those categories so it seems like it was an inspired and accurate and you know good choice i wondered one thing i have not ever learned is exactly if there was any politics behind it, other than from what I understand, Ford Frick was the one who pushed for the idea that there should be a award named for the best pitcher and Cy Young be the guy. But I never read about anything, anybody dissenting or saying maybe we should do it differently or we should name it for somebody else. I mean, in theory, you could have actually called it a different when they split it. Later, seven years later, you could have had two with one right. name for another guy. But I don't know. I am unaware of any movement to make that change in the name. Uh, that's true. They, 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 have, they have that for the relief pitcher. They have the 
Mariano Rivera and the uh, Trevor Hoffman Award. Pretty recent, though. Yeah, that's pretty recent, but they have two awards, two different names, yeah, like yeah. kind of same award. But with Cy Young, it's, it's Cy Young Award, best pitcher in the league, or not. Uh, that's what I wonder if anybody ever thought of anything else but that. I, I am unaware of that and didn't read anything that said, oh, they wanted Cy Young and they wanted Christy Matthewson or something. I, I, I want to take it back to 1904, May 5th specifically, where he pitched a perfect game against Philadelphia, against Rube Watto. How, how, he, must have, he was very proud of that game because he was in his uh, mid, mid, mid-30s by then. Well, plus, uh, he had a, a, a rivalry going with Rube Waddell for a while. I mean, well, everything we've ever read about Rube Waddell was that he was a 100% character. And uh, although sometimes later you can read retroactive analysis that he was mentally ill, not just a quirky guy. So I, we don't know what the truth is as far as that goes. But there was a period of time in the season where Waddell was play, pitching as well as he ever did in his life. And he matched up with Young several times in a short period of the schedule and had good fortune against him. So he ended up getting into this groove where he would taunt Cy Young and say, I'm going to get you again, and I'm going to beat you, you know, which seems like a pretty risky move with what we know about Cy Young, but with the law of averages there. You know, so, you know, they had some tremendous duels that must have been phenomenal to watch if you Mm -hmm. appreciated pitching. You know, so anyway, this is one time, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, Cy Young is pretty happy to get the win. For a guy who is not demonstrative, you know, the time that Waruba Waddell is taunting him, he does have a little verbal payback at the end. He does say, well, you're not going to get me every time. I'm going to, you know, this was my day. And he, he got, you know, he was a guy who was so calm. And it just showed the little bit that Waddell actually got under his skin briefly. Well, I guess he had a talent for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, actually, I was just looking at his hitting records as well. And obviously pitchers don't uh, don't make the great hitters, but he had 18 home runs, 87 doubles, 35 triples. So he can handle a bat pretty well. Yeah, once in a while. He was no uh, Rick Farrell <laughs> or, or uh, Ferguson Jenkins, but he was. But he, he would get his share of hits at the right time. You know, even when you talk about good hitting pitchers, whenever I look up their records, I think, it wasn't that good <laughs> for most guys. For most guys, and you can, especially during the era where pitchers were, you know, supposed to be athletes. Before that, I had some of the funniest conversations in my life. You know, when I was still going into big league dugouts with pitchers who hadn't had a bat in their hand since little league. But in the era before that, you know, in the fifties, sixties, those guys were all around athletes who played the field and they hit all the time. So I always wonder why they could no longer hit. <laughs> Right. Good hitters in college, you know? Yeah. Stuff like that. You know, guys like that, you know. Exactly. Warren Spahn was a pretty good hitter, too. Who? Warren Spahn. Warren Spahn, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But again, when you look at his lifetime average, it was nothing to He wouldn't have made his, his, the Hall of Fame as a batter. <laughs> well, one of, one of our favorite players uh, is mentioned in the book and was a, uh, was a pretty good hitter and pitcher. I uh, was John Montgomery Ward, who uh, I guess had had a league. I, I told Jeff, I said he's always he, he always comes up. He does. You know? Yeah. He had a league. He started a league. It didn't last, but it was right. a, a rival league. Or a, you want to tell us a little bit bit about John Montgomery Ward's league? 
Well, John Montgomery Ward was really a guy who was a forward-thinking player in terms of when we think of baseball players' rights way ahead of his time. He wanted he wanted free agency at a time when I don't think they even – I'm not sure they had the words to describe it. And uh, what was his league? The Brotherhood League, right? Yeah. That was a symbol of how he felt about the other players and how everybody it, – it lasted less the time than the Federal League. I mean, the Federal League was more long-lived than that as a competitor. But he he's a guy who was uh, – he certainly got around in baseball history. And, and literally, I mean, literally covered a lot of bases, not just as a player. But he, he became an attorney, right, I think? And he, yeah. uh, and he tried to use that for baseball's uh, players' good, too. So he, he did get his fingers in a lot of things, and he certainly would have uh, appreciated someone like Marvin Miller. <laughs> Right. Before we let you go, another couple of questions we have for you. The Baseball Hall of Fame opens uh, their first class in 1936, and, and how is Cy Young not part of that first class? I will wonder about that the rest of my life. I cannot see any explanation for that. Like, I mean, the way it worked out with the group first class, so to speak, but he was not one of the first handful of guys elected. And I've never been able to sort through that, understand that, or explain it. I mean, it's just that is just inexplicable to me. I mean, the first five guys was Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Christy Matthewson, Honus Wagner, and, and Babe Ruth. They couldn't make one more plaque for Cy Young. Exactly. I mean, it's like, hey, not like you're going to quibble with the selection of those guys. But no. Is Cy Young not in that group? Exactly. Yeah, but those five other guys, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's a pretty awesome group. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yeah. you're right. He, he, yeah, I mean, they should have – either you take one of the guys out or you add Cy Young. I mean, there was no rule at the time that they could only have a certain amount go in, I would think. so. Yeah, but Talk about feeling your way. Now, yeah. that was strange. But, again, the way it worked out where they, uh, the whole group of a larger class got in together – it was less of a slight, I suppose, you know, because there was no Hall of Fame building yet. The induction ceremony became a sort of a group effort there. Exactly. Yeah, but that, that, is, that is an unanswerable question. Exactly. So after his life in Boston, he goes back to Cleveland, this time with the, uh, at the time they were called the, the Naps. This is the American yeah. League team, which eventually became the Indians, which we know will change their name in 2022. Yeah, I wonder who they'll be. Right. That's the only reason I thought of the spiders, as they said. But, you know, but I, I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm not sure I recommend the spiders. <laughs> oh, could you? Halloween, uh, They're probably not going to be the naps again either, right? Probably not. I mean, some people, the think, way, right? some people think the, the, rock, the rockers, but that's too similar to the Rockies. So I, I doubt yeah, it's going to be that. Yeah, the rockers, they're saying because of the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So he retires from baseball after the 1911 season, and he, he retires. He goes back to his farm with his wife, and he lives just a very productive life, right? Mostly, yeah. I mean, not someone who wanted to manage. He, you know, not one of the guys who stayed in the game as a scout for decades or a coach. I mean, his official involvement with baseball was virtually over. You know, he would get invited to things, you know, make appearances. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was very active in the youth baseball scene in Ohio. But he's not the guy who came back and 10 years later was managing the Indians. 
Right, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was on my list. I wanted to ask you. He did manage, though. He did manage in Boston. Very briefly. Yeah, he was a fill-in uh, under tragic circumstances for everybody. Sort of the deal with the managing uh, was, I'll do it, but get me out of this as fast as you can. Right, it lasted about a week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his lifetime record is a, is a, is a lot fewer wins as a manager than he does as a manager. <laughs> And, but he didn't want to do it. He just wasn't interested. Where can people uh, pick up the book? Uh, well, it's published by McFarland out of North Carolina. The website there is, you know, McFarland Publishing. They're, they're um, the main seller these days. I don't even know who, where, what city's bookstores are open these days, you know, with the virus and, and or whatnot. So that's one place for sure. You know, the Baseball Hall of Fame library will have it probably, you know, but, you know, the Baseball Hall of Fame was closed when it came out, I think, for a period of time, too. So I don't know if they were doing any advanced shopping. Lou, is it on Amazon? I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. Yeah. Well, I, you know, because the most important thing is that people get this book. I appreciate that. It was fun to do. And, and like I said, you know, I had it in the back of my mind for so long. It was kind of when they said, yeah, how about that? I thought I was thrilled. Because I had written, in between the idea, I had written a lot of other books. But Cy Young never went away as a worthy topic for me. So, Any other topic you're thinking about in the future? Well, I'm about to start my next book. I haven't, I've researched it, but haven't written a word yet on Johnny Mice. Johnny Mice, okay. And next year, I have scheduled to come out two finished books. One on the 1930 season as the flip side of the hitting world to the 1968 pitching world. That's due out in spring. And I did one on Johnny Vandermeer and the Reds of 39 and 40, which is also due to come out. So those are, those are done, but not out. And, and we should point out, you're just not baseball. You, you do football, hockey. You, you do all sports, correct? Yeah, in the last several years, you'll laugh at this. I prim- more than anything else, I've been an outdoors writer and a rodeo writer. Ah. <laughs> I was living in Wyoming for six years, and I went there to write a book on rodeo, and I, a paper asked me to stay, and I ended up being their rodeo beat writer. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a blast. I loved it. I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a cowboy, so it was like going back to my real youth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Louie, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. The book is great. Check it out. Pick it up where you can. And we really appreciate you take, taking the time to be with us. Well, anytime. Just, it's, been a, it's fun for me to do, and I always enjoy talking to people who like baseball. And like I said, anytime is great. Thank you, Lou. Thank you. Thank, thank you, guys. And we'd like to thank Lou Friedman for that interview. It was a great interview. I mean, it's Cy Young. I mean, come on. It's Cy Young. Jeff, you know one thing I'm I'm very envious of all these authors and and he mentioned it. We talked about the baseball hall of fame and the and the library, which I've never actually been in because I've always been at the Hall of Fame on the weekend. I've right. never been there during the week. Right. He spends see, I don't even know that I could spend all that time in there just focused on the one person. I would probably start like, oh, you know what? I wanna I wanna see if they have stuff about you know, our favorite player, uh, I, I was on, I can't remember his name, but you know, wh- whoever, you know, all these different players. Oh, I would like to see some articles about Babe Ruth. I'd like to see some Jackie Robinson articles. I'd like to see some, you know, and just, it's like, 
when you go on Facebook. It's like going down a rabbit hole. Right. I don't know that I could. Maybe, maybe if I've been there many times, but the first time I'm there, I'm like a kid in a candy store. Sure. Don't, don't be so positive there. <laughs> have you been in the library, right? I have, but it was quiet. When we, we just uh, went, went in. It's really not that. It, I guess you have to do a lot of, you have to know what you're researching for to really get the experience. Right. So you didn't, so when you went in there, did you start reading things or did you just? No, I just asked the librarian for a couple of items and she photocopied some for me and Mm. left. Yeah. Yeah. That's the things they must have in there though. It's that, you know, it's incredible. Yep. What do you you got for us, Len? I was going to say, speaking of incredible and debonair, Uh we actually have I think you're going to know what we have in just a moment. So listen to this. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. We got mail? Is that what that means? <laughs> I just like that song. Yes. Did we actually get mail? We did. <laughs> Jeff, it's a, it's a really nice letter. Yes. Why don't you start reading it? Okay. It's, it's from... Larry R. And he says, hi, Jeff and Len. I want to commend you on the interview you conducted with former New York Jets All-Pro Center Nick Mangold about his 74 BBQ sauce and his NFL playing career. I am a Jets fan, so I'm especially looking forward to listening to this interview. A lot of disappointment has occurred during the almost 30 years of being a Jet fan. Uh, Larry, it's more like 50 years. And it's rooting for this team. (laughs) However... Nick was considered among the best at his position. For all the disappointing years the Jets have had during my time as a fan, I've been lucky to have offset this doom and gloom with being a New York Yankees fan with so many glorious years of winning the championships in the 90s, 2000, and 2009. However, it's been too long since the Yankees have paraded down the Canyon of Heroes in New York City after winning the title. Based on your interview, I plan to look up Nick's BBQ sauce on Amazon and possibly buy some sweet sauce with a lot of heat. I'm surprised to learn that Nick still lives in New Jersey and happy to hear that his son is still a Jets fan. In addition, I was impressed that Nick is a wine connoisseur and not just a former football player who drinks beer. I do like that 74 BBQ Source donates some of the proceeds to charities, including Answer the Call. Both of you continue to do a great job with this podcast and look forward to listening to future episodes. Stay healthy and stay safe. All the best, Larry R. Well, thank you, Larry. Thank you, Larry. So, Jeff, can I just say, I love the fact that he's able to talk about the Jets and somehow he gets in about the Yankees. Well, you know, Len, I think it's all about balance. You know, you have uh, winning here with the Yankees, but losing down here with the Jets. Right. So kind of balance that way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, yeah. The teams that I root for, sometimes they're all losing. So yeah. it's, it, it, it's nice to have that. At least you get the sorrow and then you get the happiness. I guess so. so Larry, thank you for writing. We appreciate the, that you uh, listen to the show. You're a loyal listener. Jeff, if any of our other listeners would like to write us or call us, please give us the information. Sure. Our phone number is 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com facebook page is baseball and bbq our twitter address is at baseball and bbq youtube 
Baseball and BBQ. Instagram is Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Please rate, review, and follow us. Thanks. Jeff, one other thing about, we were talking about no-hitters, right? Yep. So this is off of last year. We're still in this seven-inning doubleheader deal. Yeah. There is a seven-inning no-hitter this year yes. by Madison Bumgardner. Yes. Right? Care to comment on that? Well, I don't know. Does it count or not? <laughs> Apparently, it doesn't count. No, it doesn't. It's, it's a no. no-hitter. It's a complete game with no hits. But that it sounds like a no-hitter. No <laughs> it sounds... Boy, what, what, Jeff, what is a no-hitter? <laughs> I think it's a complete game with no hits. Right. But if the, the game... Chances are, although in this season, normally I would say, you know what? Chances are you go into the eighth and ninth innings, and we know as Met fans that there are a lot of games that get lost, no hitters that get lost in those innings, right? For some reason, the guys tire. Madison Bumgardner, he's an older pitcher now, right? Still the beginning of the season, arms maybe not as uh, stretched out. Who knows? The point is maybe the game goes eight innings, nine innings, Maybe he doesn't get a no-hitter, but it's not his fault that he pitched every inning possible. It's not his fault that the game is over. Yeah, I, I know, and I think no-hitters aren't, aren't surprising these days because the hitters are – there's been more strikeouts and, and less balls put in play this year than, than ever before. And through April, it was, it was the worst offensive month, you know, so it's not surprising. No, it's – again, it's they're swinging for the fences. Right. Home runs. They all, they're, they're swinging up. They want to hit the ball out of the park. The game, oh, we've spoken to so many people. The game has certainly changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what, though? Not only has it changed with things like that, you know, with the players and the shifts have, have, have changed, of course. Um, and that's another thing. But all these rule changes that they're making now. Yep. I know. I just hope they don't. Put, I hope they don't. I hope they don't put in the mercy rule. From the interview with Lou Friedman, Cy Young, right? One of the very interesting things to learn from the book is that we know that there was a, there was a time when balls were underhanded. You know, they, they, they all these different things. But what a lot of people probably did not know is that the mound used to be a lot closer, right? Forty-five feet, as we learned mm-hmm. in the interview. Now it goes to 60 feet, 6 inches. That's a big difference, 15 feet, right? Well, now I heard in the minors, aren't they experimenting with something where they're even moving the mound further back? Yeah, it'll be another foot. They're going to experiment with that. That's another experiment. The runner on second base in the ninth inning, uh, you know, in extra innings. Are they, Jeff, are they tinkering too much with the game? Yes, and don't get me started. That's, That's for another podcast. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> it, it's we can all go right. all day with that and you know what we yeah, have we, uh, we, do, we, we do have we're going to have special broadcasts coming up with, with some guests that we will get into this stuff but for now yeah. len why don't we bring on an interview with george help me out there georgiotis <laughs> thank you and here's george baseball and barbecue listeners you guys are in for a big treat I, I just from speaking to our next guest for just a short period of time before we started recording, I could tell already you guys are going to really love this. He is 
someone that if you do any kind of research and go down that rabbit hole, you will be amazed at what you find. He's been on the TV Food Network. He does charity work. He does YouTube videos. He owns various restaurants. Our guest is none other than George Georgiatis, and we are so honored to have him on Baseball and Barbecue. George, welcome to the show. I'm honored to be here, and I so much appreciate that you have me on, man. This is going to be fun and exciting, man. I'm thrilled to be even be here. Greek baseball and barbecue. All right. <laughs> and, and I have to say, tell me if I'm saying this right. Yasu? That, but you said it better than uh, a Greek say it, man. Yasu. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're right. I got the wine to do it, too. <laughs> nice. And then I was also told Tikanis. Tikanis, Galan, Esi. All right. Okay. If for anyone who doesn't know what I said, which would be me, uh, oh, can I you say hello? that live, man? No. <laughs> hello, how are you? You cursed out my goat, man. No. <laughs> I, that's, that, I knew it. I knew they told, I should have researched it first. <laughs> they said to say that. I didn't know I was cursing out like your goat. Echo Echo, you remember the Greek show? What was that? My Big Fat Greek Wedding, you know? That's right. I, I love that. With, with the Windex. Yeah. You know? <laughs> All right, Jeff, take it away. Okay, George, looking at your website, it's fascinating. You have all these ways you've cooked all over the world. But I want to get started back when you uh, went to the beginning. You're making beginning. me blush. You're making me blush, Jeff, man. <laughs> back to the beginning, but when you uh, graduated from culinary school. And I want to tell you that my son is also a, a former Wildcat at Johnson wow. & Wales University. Wow, that's great, man. Yeah. He went for culinary? No, he's uh, hospitality management, and he's doing very well. Yeah, it's like, where is he working? He's working for Marriott. He's now in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. Oh, that's a nice area, man. That's a good corporation. Man. Yes. Proper places. Yeah, so tell us about your time at Johnson & Wiles. Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, tell you the truth, man. I had a good time over there also man, <laughs> with the school. That was a long time ago. I'm like 55 years old. Uh, you know, it was a lot of fun, man. I mean, um, I cooked from a young age. I've always knew I wanted to cook from 14. So I really didn't take, you know, high school that seriously because it was like I knew my vision was I wanted to be a chef. So I used to work at this country club in Scarsdale, uh, Quaker Ridge Country Club. You know, my uncle, you know, God rest his soul, you know, brought me there and taught me, you know, how to, how to cook and how to, and how to like the restaurant business. And then from there, the chef who was the chef there went to Johnson & Wales, you know, and he told me about it. So... You know, I had a lot of cooking experience, so for me, it was like fun. You know what I mean? I was just learning the technique, and then I stayed on and did uh, two more years and did the hotel restaurant management after that because it was, you know, it was the first. The CIA at the time wasn't offering a four-year program. I mean, I'm 55. I guess that's a bunch of years ago. I was in my 20s, and uh, so they were. And, I, you know, campus life. I can tell you stories, but I might get arrested now. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jeff, that's what's you know, going on. I grew on up in Johnson New York City. Uh -huh. <laughs> These are things that Jeff probably didn't hear from uh, his son. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I don't care anymore. I'm getting old, but I don't care. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah, you okay. began your career in, a, in the catering kitchen at the Hotel Pierre. Yes, that was one of my first official jobs at a school before the country club when I was part-time. 
Yeah, that was great, man. That was a great experience, a great stepping stone dealing with uh, unions and a professional kitchen, you know, because the country club was, you know, professional, but not like the Pierre. It was an Austrian chef, Franz Klompfer, you know, really, really great chef and then and, and chef de parties and the whole brigade system, catering, the upstairs, downstairs, room service, you know, it was every, every gamut, man. Crazy times, man. Where, where was that? Was that New York City? Yeah, it's in New York City. It's right across from the Plaza Hotel. I guess I forget which street. Fifty, maybe sixty-first Street. That comes to me around there. It's directly across from the Plaza, right across from Central Park. Now, George, when you started, okay, it, things were not. There was no Food Network. There wasn't Netflix. Now has all these no. food shows. So there was it, now chefs now have become uh, you know celebrities. Yeah, I mean, but when you started, you didn't yeah. have any of that. No, man. Back then it was like, it was more like renegades. I mean, I worked with David Burke and Waldy Maloof and, you know, all these big time chefs growing up and Charlie Palmer and, you know, back in those days where they're older than me. So I was like their, you know, slave, their peons, which was my pleasure. You know what I mean? That culture was a we chef type of culture, you know, and that means yes in French, you know, and that was our mantra. You either said we chef or you left, you know what I mean? There was no... Nowadays, there's a little banter, cooks, you know, they watch the TV Food Network. But right. you did it because you liked it, because it was definitely long hours and, and a lot of work, you know, a lot, of, a lot of stress. Yeah, at the time, there was Julia Child, right? Yep, yep. She was on PBS all the time. You're going to laugh, then, Chris. I did, her, I did a couple of her birthday parties with David Burke. Like her oh, really? Oh. Her 80, yeah. Wow. What was the picture? What was she like? Tell us about her. You no, know, she was a great woman. She was a big, tall woman, actually. She was like six feet tall. I didn't think she was that big, but she was just sweet. I didn't meet her like that long, but she, you know, talked to me. I was next to her. She thanked me. I mean, I made a joke with the guys because we were all in this big picture, and she was next to me, talking to me for a little bit, and the chef was like, you know, what was she telling you? And I was like, she gave me her room key. What should I do? <laughs> that- it was a joke, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it, yeah, sure, it was. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't. Maybe I'm confusing her with someone else, but isn't there? Didn't Julia Child uh, do something? Was is she the one who was before like uh, a spy or something? Or didn't she do something with the military? Or maybe uh, you I'm know thinking. What? Of... I read her book a while ago, and it wasn't. She worked for the government. Okay. In, and that's what in France, like she did something mm-hmm. for like the embassy for the U.S. embassy. Like, okay. I knew she did something. Her husband did. Her husband. Okay. Actually, that's a great show. Stanley Tucci, who was the actor in the movie at the time, mm-hmm. uh, he was playing the husband, and it was more him for something with mapping and and that kind of stuff. He was good okay. at. And then that's uh, how she got into the Cordon Bleu. You know uh, what I mean? Then she got into cooking and mm-hmm. blue and yeah, great and her, woman, man. I mean, great, great, great woman. Yeah. Her uh, beef 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 bourguignon was yeah. uh, was her is supposedly very difficult to make, but oh, if you no, master oh, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what she did to to cooking, you know, to mainstream it that way in a time is you know pretty much luck and genius, I guess, at the same time. Yeah. And then there was also uh, what the galloping gourmet. Yeah, was uh, <laughs> another one, right? Yeah, I used to watch them. I used to watch these shows as a little kid. I don't like to admit it too much. You know what I mean? 
That's why I get like a motorcycle and tattoos, you know? <laughs> but that was it. You know, I, now, of course, you have uh, any type of cooking that you could think of. You know, I mean, with us, barbecue, there's so many celebrity chefs on TV. And, you know, you have, I, I mean, and some of them that are barbecue, but also other types of cooking. And yeah. it, it changed a lot. And it's amazing yeah. how many people love to just watch cooking. I mean, you really just change. You're not it. eating the food. <laughs> you're not yeah, doing no, it. You're watching no, it. No. I think, you know, to the truth too, when he went to Johnson and Wales, Emeril Lagasse was one of the first ones who, you know, he really did it. You know, I've always wanted to dabble at it, but I just never had the opportunity. You know what I mean? Or the, I don't know. It never just happened. I wouldn't mind. I was always saying he's not really a Greek chef, you know, doing that kind of stuff on the Food Network, you know? So, George, tell, tell us a little more about your career. It's been fascinating. It looks like you lived all over the world. You went to Switzerland, and you spent some time at a French oh Moroccan God. restaurant. Oh, are you guys the CIA? You're scaring me, man. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, show him your badge. Show him your badge, Jeff. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. You, you've been all over the world cooking. I mean, it's great. Yeah. Uh, tell us about it. You know, I, 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 what took you from one place to another? You know what? I was one of those guys who was just like a little free-spirited, you know what I mean? I wanted to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, and kind of nobody stopped me to a certain degree, and I was looking, I'm looking at my daughter, I'm like, where does she get that from? She like uh, just got her permit, and she wants to like drive, you know, <laughs> get her license, I'm like, <laughs> and you know Good what? luck with that. I, Good. <laughs> you know, like, like you guys, when you're young, you know, I, I got married older, I was like 38, or no, 36, and kids mm -hmm. at 38, so I'm of younger kids. But it was just fun just exploring new things and learning different things, you know, going to new countries and learning their cuisine and learning the food. It was more about like absorbing, working at all these good restaurants and absorbing knowledge and having fun at the same time, you know. And I also love skiing, you know, that was a driver. I used to be a big skier, a mountaineer, you know, rock climbing and that kind of stuff back in my younger days when I was healthier and skinnier. <laughs> so, Thanks. so. George, what was the first restaurant that you opened and, and what finally gets someone who, who is a chef in, a, in a, another restaurant to finally decide to open a restaurant? You know what? I, I mean, I opened a bunch of restaurants, actually, and helped, you know, come in afterwards. Like there would be, I don't know, let's say there was a place, there was a place called Betty Ali Cantonori, this guy, Steve Zolas, who opened up a couple of trendy places in New York City called Shea Asada Bar 6. Bar six is still there today, believe it or not. I think that's like almost, you know, 50, like at least 30 years ago, you know, give or take. And, you know, I just started helping open up these trendy places. You know what I mean? Because at one time he had this guy, Brian Miller, come in and test me out. And he's like, George, do you want to be, make money? Or do you want to be well known? I was like, you know what? I think I'd like to make money. <laughs> <laughs> and we started opening up places like that. You know what I mean? The trendy little, you know, cool scenes, bar six, Asadas, And then, I mean, I work for uh, like David Burke, Wally Maloof, uh, all these other guys growing up. I can name a couple. LaBerna Den, you know, back in the day, like Hood Bass, you know, and Jean-Jacques Rochoux. So I'm classically French trained. My mother loved to cook. Growing up, you know, I was a big influence, Greek pastries and stuff like that. You know, she'd be watching like cooking shows. I never thought I'd be cooking Greek food. You know, I always thought it was peasant food. You know, you go to Astoria, guys. You remember? You go to Leah's Corner, Astoria, you pick the stuff. I'm a trained chef. 
And then one thing led to the other, you know, a broken leg skiing and missed opportunity here. And, you know, I should open up a steakhouse there, but that didn't work out. And then Avra opened up, wanted to get rid of their chef. Then after a while, I was kind of that chef where, like, if they wanted to replace somebody and I was available, I would go in and, you know, fix it. You know what I mean? Kind of hire the right people and stay a year or two and then move on. That was kind of my reputation, you know, when I would go into a place and a, a chef was there, like, go ahead. <laughs> you, you, were, you were like, I'm getting uh, fired. Uh, what's, the, what's the word? I get uh, bored. That's my problem. You know what I mean? I can't stay somewhere too long. You, like you a, mentioned that your mom had a big influence on, on you. Actually, I saw some YouTube videos. I thought your grandmother had a big influence. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, I got yeah. a more yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> I should have brought Yaya out, man. I'm thinking about doing a friends of mine. I used to do the salmon and woven potatoes at the Hudson River Club. And they're funny. They want me to do it again. So I'm going to have Yaya come out, you know what I mean? And criticize it. <laughs> you go, salmon and woven potatoes. <laughs> what that's is actually, this? That's a good Julia Child impression, too. Right? <laughs> Probably it's a combination. Then. <laughs> so, George, I, I want to make sure. I think that I'm having a good time. I'm drinking wine, man. <laughs> I, I'm glad. Jeff, did you send him a bottle? Because uh, are we allowed to do that, man? Oh, please! You can do whatever you want on this. That's the idea. Yeah, of it. Yeah. <laughs> so we are baseball and barbecue, and of course, but barbecue we're live fire cooking, and you know whether it's over a you know whether it's grilling or barbecue slow slow cooking whatever it is, but there are so many cooking over an open flame, mm-hmm. all over the world. All over the world, yeah. They do it everywhere. Okay, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it. This is the it's the oldest form of cooking. Yeah, but Greek barbecue, Greek. There's I have so many things that to ask you about Greek barbecue. For instance, when I was thinking about it, I'm thinking lamb. I love lamb on a barbecue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but then I saw octopus. Even better. Yeah. Okay. And I don't know that if people think of octopus on a grill or Ooh, the only way to do it, you know. <laughs> and I think what Jeff, you saw a video or something of George was making octopus. I did. That's funny. Huh? Holding up the yeah, octopus yeah, with yeah, the yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> So tell us about that. You're gonna laugh. I mean, I first started making the octopus in the Avra days, you know, with Avra Milos, you know what I mean? And uh, the way we used to tenderize it back then was in a washing machine, man. We Wait a minute. Say that again. In a washing machine. We had a washing machine in the basement. And I swear it's so hilarious. I saw it at first. I thought that they washed their linen. You know what I mean? Uh, when I went to Avra. Because <laughs> they had opened like a couple of months and didn't like the chef. Some things were going on. Yeah, I got to be careful. Shady things. So then they brought me in. You know what I mean? And I didn't know. I'd never seen that before. I never cooked Greek food. You know, it was a classically French trained chef, you know, and I saw the machine and I, oh my God. And what we used to do was cut the heads off, throw them in the washing machine. It wasn't connected. It was only connected to the cold water. And we would throw in like a handful of kosher salt and let it beat around in the machine, like simulating the banging on the rocks and the tenderizing of the octopus to make it tender. And it worked, you know what I mean? Because it would agitate it. And now what they do before they bring it to us is they have like these big cement mixer looking things 
with little things on it where they throw them in there and it kind of bangs it around, yeah. you know. But that was that joke that I made, you know, with Yaya banging the octopus <laughs> on the rocks. But uh, <laughs> but they used to do that until it foamed, you know what I mean? Until it got yeah. that smashing it, smashing it, man. Yeah. Freaking Yaya's crazy, bro. You stay away from <laughs> Yaya, man. She cracks chicken's heads, man, you know. <laughs> well, I would, we, we should have had her on. Throwing. We should have had her on. <laughs> But of course, you know, Jeff, you may not know this because I, I don't know how you are with laundry, but the reason it's just cold is you can't put octopus on, on hot because the colors will, will fade. Yeah. You know, they'll run. <laughs> so it's only cold. <laughs> octopus is cold water. <laughs> that's it. And, and then you, you don't put it on in the dryer. You have to. No, no, you're good, man. You're you have to, good. you know, hang it dry or it put it on a rack. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Otherwise, it'll shrink. You can't put yeah. it in a dryer. I mean, I gave you the secret with the octopus, actually. I probably get a lot of chefs upset, you know what I mean? How we cook it in the vinegar laying down. <laughs> like a magician. He just gave away a secret. Yeah. He, he told how the disappearing act. Including my mother, you know what I mean? She's like, oh, you got to boil it with corks in it. Everybody has their little, you know, secret. Wow. For it. But it's, you know, it's acidulated water. It's science, man. People, acidulated water, acid, breaking down the protein while you bake it in the oven, you know, the vinegar. Yeah, that's wow. what it is, man. Yeah, do you, you, do, you, do you grill it? I bake it first. Okay. You have to bake it in the oven until it's like a fork tender, they call it, you know, when you stick a skewer in it and it comes out easy. They can watch the video, I guess, if they want. And then you have to let it cool down, and that's when the barbecuing comes, man, where you rub it with that those spices, lemon, olive oil, garlic, whatever herbs you want in there, thyme, and you have the barbecue up, and then you grill it. Make sure that's charred on the outside. That's the best part, those little charred parts, man, the barbecue. But that's not mm. like an open flame wood or charcoal, you know, like a fresh barbecue, you know. Yeah, where do you go for your octopus? Where's the best place to get it? You know what? There's different regions that you get the octopus from. I'll tell you the, the bad ones. We'll get them out of the way first, and I'm not – hope I don't get in trouble by them, you know what I mean? But, like, the <laughs> Indonesian and the Indian is not of the best quality. And nowadays they're – you know, they're outfished in Greece, believe it or not, the crazy Greek fishermen, they will like throw dynamite in the ocean <laughs> and blow up all the fish. So now there's no more fish in Greece. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it all comes from Portugal and Spain. That's where some of the best octopuses are by like Gibraltar, you know, the, that area, the Mediterranean over there, the Portuguese. I thought octopus was like a deep, deep sea. I thought they, they go down low. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm not gonna lie and say I know exactly about that, but I'm sure, yeah, you know, big time. But they have to be fish, so they right have to be away. You know what I mean? That's amazing. Me too. Yeah, that's they do amazing. Fish them, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. So and they catch them. I don't know if they're, you know, scuba diving for them. And mm. nah, I wouldn't think so. I wonder mm. how. You know, I love to go on a boat now. Now you got me crazy, man. Another <laughs> <laughs> adventure, man. <laughs> Wow. I, you know, I don't even know. Is octopus an expensive fish? You know what? Back when we opened up Avra and I'll go by price, you know what I mean? Back then, it was like no more than $1.90 a pound, give or take. You know what I mean? Right. Now it's up towards the popularity, you know, like the 5 $6 range retail. Wow. I don't even know what in a monk, you know, in a, I don't buy it retail, so I don't know how right. much probably selling it for, you know, 15, 16, 17 dollars at Whole Foods or uh, one of those kind of places, Wegmans. Or. So what's the best meat do you think that's conducive to a to a grill? I mean, Greek if I'm Greek, 
if I'm Greek, the lamb. If you're Greek. <laughs> you know, there's nothing like we do it every Easter, and we're talking about the slow roasting on a spit with charcoal or wood. You know, Easter time is the best, man. There's nothing like it, you know. So you're talking about a lamb. lamb you're talking yeah. about lamb? Yeah, lamb. A whole baby lamb. A whole one. Oh, really? Like, yeah. like. Like in barbecue, a whole a whole pig, a whole, a whole pig, yeah. So you do a whole lamb. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How yeah. long does a, a a lamb take to cook? You know, depending on the size, you normally want like a twenty pounder, a twenty five pounder, two and a half, three hours. You know, give or take how high you have and how mm-hmm. close you got it to the. Wow. I have one somewhere. A picture of me doing one once. Wow. I if I could find it, man. That's fascinating. I never, you know, it's funny. I, I was thinking of lamb chops. <laughs> I didn't think of, I didn't think of a whole lamb. No, the lamb chops, they're good too. <laughs> Georgia, every, every chef has their secret ingredient. What's your, what's your secret ingredient? You know what? I hate to sound cliche, but I'm all about the ingredient itself, you know, where it comes from. And, you know, and I'm really like with eons in those places quality you know non-gmo as as healthy from the source as possible you know that stuff's important because it makes it taste better you know freshness you know what i mean and being greek you know what i mean i think i put garlic lemon and olive oil and oregano on everything man it's like uh, it's my go-to well you know i can't help it it's in my blood you know what i mean sure. <laughs> i switch it up sometimes i make a stir fry but you know mostly you know, my go-to is, you know, Greek oregano, olive oil, and lemon juice, you know? Yeah, that, that Greek oregano, I, I saw you on, on that video. It's, it's very different from, I guess, oregano we can get in stores here. You know what? It's not the same. The oregano's here. They process. That, that, that oregano comes on the stem, and you have to take it off the stem. So it's just so fragrant. You know, I can't explain it. I try to get the other oregano, but it does, it's not the same. You know, definitely a big floral difference. You know what I mean? I wish I could find that. Too many pictures. How many pictures do you guys have on your phone? I think I have like 10,000 on here, right? <laughs> yeah. Very easy to take. Yeah. You take all these pictures, but then finding them. How do you do that? And then they can't, you can't name each one, right? There should be a way. Lamb. <laughs> Are you getting all your uh, ingredients directly from Greece or do you have a supplier here? Uh, you know, some of the stuff is from Greece. But they they get it for me, you know. A lot of the olive oil, the oregano, feta cheese, the olives, you know, everything that's that could get rice. Believe it or not, I'm buying the Greek rice, which is really good. I like it better than like the Uncle Ben's for eons. Mm-hmm. It's a great product. Cause, you know, in, in Europe, they're not allowed to genetically modify anything by law. You know, so it's amazing how here they allow this. You mm-hmm. know, which is ridiculous. You know. Now you have you have eons. How is eons one location? No, we have four of them right okay. now. Yeah, we have one in the city, one in Fresh Meadows, Queens, and we have one in Montvale, New Jersey, and one in Paramus. The one in Fresh Meadows, Queens. I just looked it up, and it's right by my high school. And I wish it was open when when I I went to high school because <laughs> you might get, you'd probably get a lot of students from there. We do, we do. Them and Cadoba, you know what I mean? You know, we got to get the high school kids to convince to eat that food. They still like burgers, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I had a bowl from, uh, I had Eons a few weeks ago. The, the, actually, the person, Jared, who, who helped us to get you on, he went and he picked it up. Guy. And it yeah. was fantastic. He's a good guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was really Which real, location yeah. were you in, Fresh Meadows? I, I believe so. I, yeah, it was, that's the closest to Lake Success, I'm assuming. Yeah, right? yeah, that's our smallest location. 
Yeah. We did that. That was my partners had that spot. And I was a little nervous about it. And they're like, oh, why don't we put a little mini, you know, Eons Express to try it out? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, you know, we're in that neighborhood. And it, it it's good. You know, we get definitely. I had the, the side, had the eggplant dip. And that has a kick to it. Yeah, it's a little spicy. I was yeah. too spicy for you. Should I yell at them, man? I got, they toned me down. <laughs> yeah, They're not following a- my <laughs> recipes. I got to go in and kick some of that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, it man. Was- it was good, but it was I and the pita chips were excellent. You know what's funny is when you're opening up, you know, people think they have these dreams, right? Oh, I want to have a hundred restaurants. The issues that you have with all these restaurants after a while, you know, it's difficult, you know, and it's like when all these chefs try to expand, I see what happens, how you get too thin, like the fine dining guys, you know, with with fast casual, it could work once you get the systems and the recipes down and you know, they follow everything to the T. And it's kind of just the ops guy going and checking up on them, which I have. I should pay you guys to do that. <laughs> we'll be quality. We'll be quality control. No problem. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, okay. <laughs> we accept <laughs> food. I have to trade you in food, man. <laughs> that I g- gladly do that. And wow, that Jeff. I didn't know that I was getting a new job tonight. I, yeah. Uh, this is. You never know. This is great. So, so George, how does it work? You you set up the eons. You you set up your 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 processing. I guess you can't be at four places at the same time. So you set the recipes, and then you teach them how to do your method, and that's how it it, it happens. Yep, yep, that's it. Yeah, you do standardized recipes. You try to make sure everything is weighed properly, and they follow it exactly to what it is, and you test it. And then you roll it out. And normally we bring like our team of people and we train them at the one eons. So they have some knowledge of it. And then we have them start on that one. That was our second one. So it was like a little, uh, actually it was a third one. The second one was in uh, New Jersey in Paramus. What's the end goal or what, what do you see as, how many would you like to have? You know what, eons you know what we we also did it because my wife is into giving good food for for good people at a reasonable price you mm-hmm. know what I mean? because like you know today we went out for lunch and it's ridiculous what they're charging you know to go out and eat at a decent restaurant so now it's like 50 60 70 dollars a person right to eat something de- decent with a glass of wine so we were trying to come up with a product that's good for you similar to greek you know mediterranean fast casual that's healthy that's affordable you know what I mean? So we have a lot of vegetables and proteins and, you know, it was like $12, $13 for a bowl of really good food, you know, and that was one of the missions, you know, and also obviously to, you know, make people feel good. And through the whole pandemic, we're helping the hospital, you know, I couldn't charge them when they came in. We had our location on 34th street and second Avenue, you know, we donated a lot of stuff back then, you know, with, with what was going on this fun time that we're having, you know, and, you know, Oh yeah. You know what? You could look at it in the negative, but you know, let's look at it in the positive, but right. you know, look, we survived. Everybody's surviving. And the people that didn't survive, I feel bad. You know, they're going to probably pray for us to do or watch us to do better. Right. You know what I mean, but we're making it through, which is great. Mm-hmm. All the right. craziness and whoever survived in the restaurant business is going to be stronger for it. You know what I mean? So, and we will have part two with George Georgiatis next time on Baseball and BBQ. He's a really fun guy, Len. You can just, but just talking to him, he just exudes energy. Yeah, he's a, he's a ton of fun. And that is why we have 
we split these interviews up sometimes because how do you end something? You, it's very hard to say, okay, sorry, we're out of time. He's a ton of fun. And I think he was drinking a lot of wine too. I'm just so. saying. <laughs> I mean, he said it in the interview. <laughs> I loved though the, the the part about the octopus. I mean, yes. that's just that's wild. Uh huh. Putting it in a washing machine. Oh, I know, right? That's really wild. Yeah. And I also love the fact that he went to the same school as your son. And uh, now you know you know what goes on at that school. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> And you're giving me the wrap-up sign, so let's let's do it. Let's wrap it up. It's unfortunate, but I'll see you back on episode 95. Why don't we say hello to the musician and the poet, Shel Krakowski and Dave Dresser, as we say, baseball always brings you home. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>